You're tuned to Fine Music Radio, and it's time for Book Choice, which is brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. Hello and welcome to Book Choice on this, the first Monday of the month. I'm Gory Bowes-Taylor. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, has a high pile of Uber Super reads for you. Et voilà, we chat to Jan Hendrik van der Westhazen, the farmer's lad from Limpopo and the first South African chef to receive a Michelin star for his eponymous restaurant in Nice. Nice. Felicitations, Jan. Pair Jan's famed food with wine, as the splendid John Platter tastes and tells of Caro Fili's new book, Wine. Beverly Ross Muller was much moved by The Boys in the Boat by Daniel Brown, the USA rowing eight that won the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany. Jay Heal reminds us of the richness of Africa in four fine children's books. More of Africa as photographer Lisa King and essayist Sean Christie portray the old ways and the new of the Zimbabwean Stock Exchange in Sometimes I Make Money One Day of the Week. Melvin Minar was entranced. Mike Fitzjames has his wicked way with three crime novels to chill your heart, while a kinder Cindy Boritz finds magic in the ordinary in Mitch Albom's The Magic Strings of Frankie Presto. If we've time, we'll hear how Philip Todris was a tad disappointed in many ways by the telling of an important story by Steve Robbins in Letters of Stone. And do stay with us to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. Andrew Marshbanks, some uber super reads there from Wordsworth Books. Hi there, Gory. Thanks very much. And I've got three great new thrillers that have come out. And the first one, let me just go to the first one, is called The Widow by Fiona Barton. It's a psychological thriller about a child, a so-called child molester. It's, it's this couple. She can't have children and is desperate for children. She has a husband who tries to, to give her children but, but cannot. And unbeknownst to her, he is a secret pedophile. And things go wrong in this relationship, and a child is missing. And, of course, suspicion in the community falls on this guy because they find these images on his computer. And it works from then. As I say on the cover, a loving husband or a heartless killer? Well, he dies, falls under a bus, and the truth starts slowly coming out. I found it very good, extremely readable. That's The Widow by Fiona Barton, and it's 300-odd rand. The next one I've got is, is a book you may have heard about the movie. It's called Room by Emma Donoghue. The, the book came out a while ago. It's now come out 
as a paperback with a film tie-in jacket. This was the story of the woman and her child. She was captured as a youngster and imprisoned in this room by by this this guy. And she's sort of in the garden shed, and the, the shed is closed off from the rest of the world. She gets pregnant, has a child, and brings up the child. And the child only knows what happens in that room. And he's five, and she schemes to get him out and to get them out. And it's that story. It really is beautifully written. It's really sharp fiction. It involves you deeply. The film is also excellent. So both those are really highly recommended. It's Room by Emma Donoghue, and it's 240 Rand. Then I've got another thriller, and I think this has got to be the best one I've read for a long time since I Am Pilgrim, which, as you know, is also a marvellous thriller. It's called Orphan X. It's about a trained assassin, a trained secret agent, who suddenly goes rogue and decides that he's going to start putting wrongs right, so to speak. And suddenly, on his tail, he discovers that there is someone trying to get rid of him. Um, He broke with the program using everything he had learned to disappear, and he disappeared, and someone's on his tail. Someone who has issues with his past, someone knows that he was once known as simply Orphan X. Well, it's a marvelous thriller, absolutely absorbing, keeps you going from beginning to end. That's 285 Rand, Orphan X by Greg Hurwitz. Now, a book, a very important book, an author in Stellenbosch, Stephen Robbins has written a family history. It's called Letters of Stone from Nazi Germany to South Africa. And this is an absolutely marvelous, groundbreaking book, really one of those books that everyone should read. Um, He discovers his family history. By the way, the author lives in Stellenbosch, Stephen Robbins. He discovers letters. He's obsessed with finding out what happens to his family because They were in in Germany, in Berlin. He sees a photograph of two people, three unknown women, and he learns that these women, his father's mother and sisters, photographed in Berlin in 1937 before they were killed in the Holocaust. He becomes obsessed with finding out what happens, finds out a few official facts, and then he stumbles across 100 letters sent to his father and his uncle from the family in Berlin during the Nazi terror. And the women in the photograph could now tell their story. Well, it's so beautifully done, this book. It's incredibly sad and incredibly moving. It's a marvelous, marvelous book. You should read it. I think the finest books about the Holocaust that, that I've read. It's called Letters of Stone from Nazi Germany to South Africa, Stephen Robbins. And then finally, there's a great book that's just come out from Alan Knox Craig, and he's, I think I may have mentioned it on this program before, but I never realized before I started reading this book that he had used it as uh, training mechanisms for his people in the company. He'd written down everything that he felt that people should be, how they should behave, what they should do in life, and he uses it for all his new recruits in the company. It's called Be a Hero, Lessons for Living a Heroic Life by Alan Knox Craig. And if anyone wants to give a a young person, a teenager, someone just going into college, a book that can change their lives, this is it. Be a Hero, Lessons for Living a Heroic Life, Alan Knox Craig, and it is 220 Rand. And that's me for now. Happy reading. Cheerio. Bye. 
<laughs> Happy reading indeed. Now, Jan Hendrik van der Westhuizen got lost on his way to find music radio for our pre-record last Monday. So here is our pre-recorded, slightly hurried telephone interview. Jan Hendrik van der Westhuizen, let's chat about your second cookbook. It's called Jan, A Breath of French Air. And it's a celebration of your restaurant in Nice, which is called, well, Jan. Your restaurant is relatively new. You opened in 2013, and hey-ho, hey-ho, you've just been awarded a Michelin star. A breath of French air is, well, Jan, it's gobsmackingly gorgeous, but it's also refreshingly practical and unchefy. Gori, thanks for having me on air. And, uh, yes, I think the... The, the second book, Jan, A Breath of French, is, is a follow-up on my first book, and it's, it's just telling, it's, it's more of a memoir of what we do at the restaurant. You know, when we got the, the Michelin star four weeks ago, we, we had a very good timing with the book coming out at the same time, which was very coincidental. And, you, you know, people shouldn't expect a Michelin star book you know it's not a cookbook for michelin people it's it's really like we do food we do at the restaurant so it's relaxed there's salads there's um from spaghetti bolognese to and um, to how to bake bread like the french and jan it's so beautiful that you almost and you did the photograph so we're going to talk about that as well it's so beautiful that you almost think you won't be able to do it but actually it's very inspiring it's an easy does it cookbook and i must say in my kitchen it's very soon going to be covered with cook snips and olive oil and breadcrumbs <laughs> jan you were food editor for l magazine in south africa and then for l in paris then you went to nice and to French lessons five days a week. Read your chapter headings for us in decent French. Have you got well, the book in front of you? No, I don't have <laughs> the book in front of me, but uh, yeah, they're, they're all very French. Um, I was contributing food editor in, in Cape Town for Our Magazine, and uh, that took me to Paris. And yeah, there's, it's still once a week I have a French lesson. Of course, that's not the easiest language to learn and to speak. But and that was probably my biggest challenge when I opened the restaurant, was the language. But today, you know, we conquer the French with, <laughs> with Mos Bolikis and Boltong and so as much as that's foreign for us, um, we can also hit back with a lot of foreign words, you know <laughs> which like Babuti and Melktart and so it, it definitely works And Jan, summer's coming up in France, I mean when you go back to France now, it's it going to be warm weather there and you know all of us listening to you today and cooking from your brilliant book will be boarding a plane pretty soon, maybe in 10 minutes' time, to land at your restaurant, your Michelin-starred restaurant, what from your cookbook would you give us to eat? I mean, I've I've done your salmon in a herb garden. Yes, that was actually the dish that we served to to Michelin the first night of inspection. But in my book, there's a... And again, it's a follow-up from the first one. My mother's chocolate mousse is just something I would always make and it's just so easy um, the you know there's a spaghetti bolognese which we make for the staff um, after or before the, the kitchen gets hot and before the heat heats the kitchen um, we we have a croque and bush which we make with a Malkos filling so a little bit of French infused with a, with a South African touch 
then there's also that wonderful photograph. I mean, some of the photographs are like old master paintings. They really are. Your lighting is so sensitive. Then there's a, and I forget what it is, but it's something you serve with smoking rosemary. What's that? Yes, that's malfa pudding, um, which we make truffles with. So we basically roll truffles um, from malfa pudding. We dip it in a in a dark chocolate, and then we just stick a little rosemary stick on it. And you know, for a little bit of drama, um, as Michelin do, we light the the rosemary stick, and you get that beautiful smoke that goes with the chocolate and the malva. So yeah, a little bit of theatre going in there. <laughs> Did you know the Michelin people were coming? Did you cook specially for them? No, no. We, we got our first review or visit unannounced, and normally after that, there's a rumor in the industry that they would introduce themselves, and which they did. That was the first time. After that, we had a numer- numerous amount of visits, which we still don't know up to today how many we had. And we just got the call five weeks ago telling us that we, we have earned or we have won a Michelin star. Okay, say that sentence in French. <laughs> I barely could actually understand the guy. I was in such shock, but it was a bonsoir, uh, vous êtes uh, une étoile dans les guides Michelin 2006. So that was, that was quite, quite interesting news. And of course, I immediately ran to the closest bottle store to get a bottle of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> oh, vodka, not French one. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't get that. And, you know, you've got your, you've got your advanced diploma in culinary arts in Stellenbosch, didn't That's you? Right. And then you got your applied a BA in applied design and photography. That's right, Gary. We did a. I studied at the Stellenbosch Academy of Design and Photography after my uh, chef diploma, and specialised in photography. And yeah, it's amazing how that all kind of came together. The aesthetics of design and concept and and food, of course, which is the big thing. Well, it's a very, very, very beautiful book, but also I'm so glad to say it's also very, very... I'm, look, I'm going to make your chicken liver pate with the Parmesan cream. Oh, that's my favourite. That's my mother's recipe as well. Oh, Love it, yeah. But the photograph there is you've piped the chicken liver pate onto a plate and piped the parmesan cream onto a plate you know the rest of us are just going to slosh it about i think yeah there's, there's about five or six recipes that's a little bit finicky you know there's like a bit of piping and a bit of showing off involved <laughs> but yeah as we we do you know we we, we push our limits we, or we try to at least but you should definitely try it i mean just use a plastic piping bag and just pipe it through that it's very easy oh i have millions of plastic piping bags obviously <laughs> <laughs> we were talking to young hendrik van der Vesthazen about his gobsmackingly beautiful and useful book it's called Jan, a breath of french air and as you heard chapter headings in Jan's cookbook are deliciously in french now to win one of two 200 rand wordsworth books vouchers Translate fromagerie for us. Does it mean cheese? Anything to do with cheese? Does it mean from the menagerie? We're waiting for your calls on 021-401-1013. John Platter. Worth taking sips and tips from Caro Freely's new book, Wine. Caro Freely, Wine, The Essential Guide. This is a gem of a wine book witty and wise and compact, just 200 pages, graphically and abundantly illustrated, showing the expertise of a former IT specialist and business consultant, gone native, so to speak, in the heart of the French wine countryside. I found myself immediately bonding with Carafini. She's simple, informal, self-deprecating, helpful, 
and has a real knack for clarifying complexities. Wine is complex, a vast and historic subject. We've been making wine for 9,000 years, and it's woven its way deeply into our cultures and cuisines, often with intimidating mystery, and as we all know, frankly, sometimes with lots of bullshit too. Caro doesn't gloss over the mysteries and wine's wonderful store of literary aphorisms. Actually, she delights in many of them, but also unravels the subject with clear, helpful science and a thoroughly contemporary take on the countless aspects of wine. And all with the authority of someone who's grown, made, and probably most difficult of all, marketed and sold wine from the Fili family's Chateau Haute-Garrigue in France's touristy Dordogne region. She and her husband, Sean, a South African, rescued an ancient neglected vineyard and winery, frequently flirting with bankruptcy and hardship, especially for their two little daughters, and testing their own marriage. Sean had their French and lost a finger and nearly his life tangling with vineyard equipment. Those adventures were the subject of two previous Caro books, Great Expectations and Saving Our Skins. This third and latest title, Wine, The Essential Guide to Tasting, History, Culture, and Much More, is just perfect for the general reader and actually quite a few experts too. Beginners will feel, I think, intrigued and captivated by authoritative chatter on matters like her eight principal wine aromas, fruity, floral, herbal, and vegetal, oak, nutty, mineral, and dairy by cream and butter. Using her charts and questionnaires, you can discover what kind of taster you are. She encourages you to cultivate your key sense of smell, first by shutting your eyes, identifying smells in the kitchen and elsewhere. She explains the differences between organic, biodynamic, and natural wines, all urgent topics in today's sustainability debates, and the differences between machine and hand-picked grapes from their wines, fewer frogs and lizards in the must of hand-picked wines. Natural versus inoculation fermentation is another subject. Natural yeasts encourage beautiful and subtle bittersweet flavors in wine, for example, most people will dive into her really useful and simplified take on pairing wine and food. So, saltiness accentuates acidity, and a softish, low-acid, off-dry wine will usually fall flat. Better to go with a bolder, firm acid and tannin wine, for example. And she advises to cook with the same wine you're serving at table, to echo the similar flavors. Rich wines for rich food, yes, mostly, but sometimes richness can become excessive. A heavy, fatty lamb meal will be matched much better again by a higher acid, tannic firm Cabernet Sauvignon. Summarizes all the major grape varietals and the characteristics of their wines. And as a useful summary of the endless, not quite so simple, cork versus cork screw business, corkscrew for wines to be drunk within two or three years, fine. Beyond that, wines may pick up some plastic smells, so call for serious wines, please. And one of my own concerns, alcohol levels, she discusses how to detect high alcohols without the aid of the label. By the way, did you know why men can handle more alcohol than women, even when they're about the same weight and size? The girls have less water in their bodies, so they can't disperse alcohol as easily as men do. And if two of you are sharing a bottle, and then quite a few of us do that of an evening, just remember that if you share it about equally, not only will the girl be tipsier, you'll both be over the legal limit. That's 
Why? And by Carol Feely, Summersdale Publishers, Wonderful, played by local saxophonist Mike Lartz. It's been called Chariots of Fire with Orbs. Beverly Rose Muller, you were moved almost to tears. This year's Olympic Games are looming, and if you've never watched the rowing events, then this marvellous, deeply moving and absorbing book, The Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown, could persuade you to change your mind. It's the true story of a team of poor boys from Washington State, a cold northern corner of the United States, who took on the might of the Third Reich in 1936 to vie for Olympic gold. It's easily the most affecting sports book I've ever read, but it is much more than that. It's an interrogation into what makes champions despite terrible odds and what motivates hundreds of thousands of onlookers, most of whom had never been on a boat, let alone rode one, to turn out in awful weather to cheer their boys on. It's also a sensitive history of the years of the Depression, when families struggled just to survive, let alone achieve greatness. And it charts the rise of fascism and the highly choreographed Berlin Olympics, meant to be Hitler's triumphant valedictory, except for Jesse Owens, except for these boys in the boat. Few of us understand how hard it is to row competitively. It is probably the most brutal sport there is. A journalist wrote, there is no place to stop and get a satisfying drink of water or a lungful of cool, invigorating air. You just row until they tell you it's all over, neighbor. It's no game for a softie. By the time a race is done, every muscle and cell is screaming with pain. These particular boys in the boat were not softies. They were not from the privileged colleges of Harvard, Princeton, Yale, or Oxford and Cambridge. These boys were accustomed to a kind of hardship that defies belief. 
The author Brown has shrewdly built his story around the figure of Joe Rents, whom he met by chance as an old man. Joe was a tall, well, they were all tall, blonde, good-looking teenager whose childhood was so harsh it is a miracle he survived. His mother died when he was a tot, and his stepmother loathed him, persuading his father to abandon him twice, once at the tender age of ten, and then again in his early teens, leaving Joe to fend for himself, washing dishes, chopping wood, foraging for mushrooms in the woods, and amazingly succeeding at school and continuing to university. But he still had to fund his tuition, and he spent every summer and spare time doing harsh manual labor, thereby also building huge upper body strength. During his school years, he had met his childhood sweetheart, Joyce, and they would eventually marry on their graduation day and raise a loving family. Meanwhile, Joe tried out for the rowing team, for which there was very fierce competition. They had a maniacal coach who drove them in the pestilential weather of their region. Perpetual rain, sleet, snow, sometimes so bad they had to scrape the icicles off their boats. The Berlin Olympics produced some of the best and best funded rowers in the world. But this team from Washington State had faced tough odds all their lives and their progress is heart-stoppingly exciting. The momentum builds, the tension accelerates, and it will take a stern reader to stop the tears. Once in a while a book comes along that I fall utterly in love with. This is one. I've been talking about The Boys in the Boat, An Epic Journey to the Heart of Hitler's Berlin by Daniel James Brown. And there's Beverly wiping the tears from her eyes. And as you heard earlier, chapter headings in Jan's cookbook, A Breath of French Air, are deliciously in French. To win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth books vouchers, translate fromagerie for us. Does it mean cheese, to do with cheese, selling cheese, cheese factory? Does it mean from the menagerie? We're waiting for your calls on 021 401 1013. Jay Heal, four fabulous children's books to remind us of the magic of Africa. And here's Jay Heal with just some of the richness of Africa. In the children's book world, a reissue is a rare occurrence. Books tend to appear and disappear, and that's it. But now, four good publications for young readers have found new life. The first is called The Rainbow's Heart by Richard Latimer, and it first appeared in 1982. The publisher, Bumble Books, has remastered the original illustrations so that the artist's colors are now strong and fresh, and the result is bewilderingly beautiful. The adventure is explained best in the map-like end papers which portray the journey from monotonous civilization out into the breadth of fantasized Africa, and the route followed to the weird mountain patterned with rock art designs which hides the rainbow's heart, with a reminder that the reader or viewer is being invited to play I Spy for the wildlife details everywhere. The heart of the matter is that the bees are dying for lack of honey. So our heroes plant the seeds they brought 
and flowers bloom instantly and wondrously, as they can do only in magical books like this. The Rainbow's Heart is a story to be followed and explored visually, with much to enjoy about Africa. You may remember those dainty, oh-so-English flower fairies created by Cicely Mary Barker. Well, in 2007, our poet Anki Kroch produced Afrikaans verses about our own Feinbos fairies, with superb illustrations by Fiona Moody. Umuzi publisher has just reissued these in soft cover in both English and Afrikaans. The English text is by Gus Ferguson. These South African floral spirits are modern and with it. The Erica fairies wear jeans and Grandma Geranium smokes a pipe. Fifteen ultra-large, highly varied, magnificent picture pages, some like the Chinchurinchi and Sugarbush, are flower designs on a stylized background. Others, the Deza and the Stradizia dragon, have Cape countryside behind them. Everywhere for young eyes to discover are little insects, camouflaged frogs, exquisite birds. You and your children just must meet the Feinbos fairies. And finally, two collections of folk tales by Tsina Mshrope, Stories of Africa and Our Story Magic. They were originally published by the University of KZN Press, and the English versions are still available from them. But the great news is that, thanks to BiblioNF, they are now also available in our African languages as well. Each large-paged, hardcover book with brightly colored pictures by varied artists contains ten tales retold by our queen of storytellers. Read them aloud and they bounce around in midair, full of impact, rhythm and enthusiasm. Stories of genuine Africa by Tsina Mshlope and essential on every multilingual bookshelf of folklore. Melvin Minnar, <laughs> a strange subject, the Zimbabwean Stock Exchange. Sugar and spice with snowflake, it's nice. As the title suggests, this is not a recipe book for the low carbs and no sugar family. It is sponsored by Snowflake, so most recipes have you measuring cups or tablespoons of flour or baking powder. Small gripe here. The price of 190 rand for a book that has your readers automatically buying your product is a bit steep. However, if you're looking for a recipe book that is flop-proof, this is a great choice. The recipes are as promised simple, the results are rewarding, and the ingredients affordable. Sugar and Spice is an A4 book with 110 recipes. It is divided into six sections, from savory snacks and meals to classic and celebration cakes. Each main recipe is spread over two pages, with color photographs breaking down the baking or cooking into three steps, and a full color picture of the completed product. I tried some of the veggie dishes. The mac cheese was great. In fact, a friend has just asked me for the recipe. The butternut soup, plain but good. The sweet corn and cheese fritters were excellent. Yet the baking was the best surprise. Basic recipes which you can add to or subtract from. I used cream cheese over my chocolate cake instead of icing sugar. 
Each recipe was a success, from the chocolate oil cake to the crustless milk tart, and quick oil scones. In fact, this is the first time I've ever succeeded at baking scones. However, if the proof is in the pudding, then what better person to try out a recipe from a family cookbook than my twelve-year-old daughter, Safra? I baked the gummy chocolate biscuits, even though we left out the jelly tarts, and so we really baked chocolate biscuits. The recipe was so easy to follow, and the end result looked like it was a complicated, advanced recipe. Even though the instructions are simple, they are detailed, and we used the chocolate icing recipe from one of the other recipes in the book, and the results were delicious. I would recommend this book whether you are a beginner or a skilled chef. I baked this with a friend, and my mom only came into the kitchen once, and that was to eat the biscuits. Oh, I'm sorry about that. I said it was Melvin Minar next. That was Vanessa Levenstein and her daughter reviewing sugar and spice. And now, Melvin, it's your turn with a very strange subject: the Zimbabwean stock exchange. A review of sometimes I make money one day of the week. A handsome book like this is perfect proof that tangible print will never disappear in the digital cloud. The precision production. Printed and made a significant word in the credits, in Verona, Italy, charges the book with presence, of understated design, size, and ambition, elegant with faultless trim and finish. It's a publication to hold and to liberate your eyes. Editor Bronwyn Lawful Yun of Fourth Wall, in this case working with designer Oliver Barstow, is known for her relentless production values when it comes to books like this. Sometimes I make money. One day of the week is a photographic essay by Liza King, tracing a humble subject, the hands-on analog workings for a while, a crucial one as it turns out, of the virtually unknown Zimbabwe stock exchange. The beautifully lyrical title, with its self-effacing ring, fits the delicate deferential style of King's pictures to a T. The implied tease draws one into the subtle images. Mostly portraits of the brokers, but also the tacky, run-down environment, now closed down, where they conducted their money-making and trading business in a charming but vital anachronistic fashion. Over some three years, King was the silent photographer in the room, where stockbrokers met daily to trade. It was an unassuming bureaucratic space on a single floor in the Union Avenue building in Kwame Nkrumah, as collaborist essayist Sean. Christie relates, she recorded a process hardly known or talked about during a time of turbulence in the country. But for all the oddity and awkwardness of the stockbroker ritual, it was an essential one, something that Christie spells out succinctly and explains in his essay at the end of the book. In its own way, it made other business possible in a depressed, unstable economy. So it is, on the one hand, an important, if curious, documentation of a peculiar social-economic endeavour, but on the other, such a finely crafted series of images that it turns like a melancholic narrative and crosses over into art. The images linger in one's mind, and the ramifications of the scenes unwind. With a focus on the people, portraits of the dealers, well-dressed, caught in thought, expression, and an interchange. Both the politics and the system are framed by gentle humanism. 
Zimbabwean artists are increasingly in the limelight, marking a strong juxtaposition of creativity in uneasy social circumstances. Both photographer and essayist mirror this superbly in this swell publication. Liza King is an artist to watch. Sometimes I make money one day of the week is the inaugural book of the Fourth Wall Books Photo Book Award. A smart move.
You heard Melvin Minnar earlier saying Lisa King is an artist to watch. So appropriately, Rick Everett has chosen someone to watch over me, and it was played by Ken Higgins. Mike Fitzjames, three crime novels there guaranteed to raise our blood pressure. Hello, Gory. I have three fine thrillers for your listeners this month. My first choice is Shanghai Redemption by Q Choa Long. For many years, Inspector Chen Chao has managed to balance the interests of the Communist Party and the demands of his position in the police force. Now it seems that he has embarrassed one too many powerful men. Disguised by a sudden promotion, he has in effect been stripped of his title and influence and is now discredited and isolated. It soon becomes clear that his enemies are not satisfied and that someone is attempting to have him killed. Quietly, but with steely determination, Chen has been charged with the investigation of a red prince, namely a high-status Communist Party figure who embodies the ruthless ambition, greed and corruption of the new China. Now with almost no power, few allies, and his own reputation on the line, he faces the most dangerous and daunting case of his career. This is a cracking read, and not for nothing has Chen been called the Morse of the Far East. My second choice is Through the Evil Days by Julia Spencer Fleming. Claire Ferguson and her new husband, Police Chief Russ Van Astine, are awoken in the night by an urgent call. A farmhouse has erupted in flames, and the couple sleeping inside have not survived. Russ investigates and now discovers that the couple had not been alone in the house. Their eight-year-old foster child, Micaiah, has vanished. Still recovering from a life-saving operation, Micaiah will die if she does not receive her medication, and the police force in Miller's Kill must locate the girl in the next eight days to save her. As a blizzard of snow drives down, the police force face an almost impossible task. Claire and Russ have discovered that the icy storm is not the only threat. Deep in the Arondac mountain region, can anyone unpick the trail before time runs out? This was tense and very satisfying. My final choice is Pretty Girls by Karen Slaughter. Twenty years ago, Claire Scott's eldest sister, Julia, went missing. No one knew where she went. She left no note, and nobody was discovered. It was a total mystery that was never solved, and it completely fractured her family, ripping it asunder. Now another girl has disappeared, reigniting chilling echoes of the past. It seems that the latest girl may not be the only one. Claire is absolutely convinced that the latest disappearance is linked to Julia's in some way. But when she begins to learn truth about her sister, she's confronted with a truly shocking discovery. And nothing will ever be the same again. Read on and truly enjoy this thrilling story. I currently rate this book at the top of our thrillers as this year's number one. 
That's it for this month. My choices were Shanghai Redemption by Q. Chowalong, Through the Evil Days by Julia Spencer Fleming, and Pretty Girls by Karen Slaughter. I hope you enjoy them all. And Karen Slaughter was, gosh, quite a choice there. And uh, Cindy Moritz, you found magic in the ordinary in Mitch Albom's The Magic Strings of Frankie Presto. Mitch Albom manages again to create magic with words in his latest offering. The magic strings of Frankie Presto, you realize from the start, is fantasy mixed with reality. Fantasy in that the story of Frankie is narrated by none other than music. Suspend disbelief and listen as music shares a secret. This is how talents are bestowed. Before newborns open their eyes, we circle them, appearing as brilliant colors. And when they clench their tiny hands for the first time, they are actually grabbing the colors they find most appealing. Those talents are with them for life. The lucky ones, well, in my opinion, the lucky ones, choose me, music. Frankie Presto was one of the lucky ones then, although his entrance to the world may suggest otherwise. He was born in Villarreal, Spain, during the time of the Spanish Civil War. The Red Terror was coming to the church in which a young expectant mother had gone to pray, and while she never emerged from that church, Frankie and the nun who delivered him did, and she cared for him until she could do so no longer. Details of how Frankie came to survive, even thrive, are played out in chapters narrated by significant people in his life who have come to attend his funeral. He died suddenly while performing. Frankie Presto, we learn, became an iconic music legend who is the greatest guitar player to ever walk the earth. A musical prodigy, ten-year-old Presto was sent from Spain to America with a six-string guitar gifted to him by his blind teacher El Maestro. This guitar is magical. Each of its six strings, when it turns blue, has the ability to change people's lives. This proves to be both a blessing and a challenge for Presto. As music says, you cannot unplay your notes. Time, like music, is indelible that way. Although Frankie's story is fantasy, real music icons also feature as characters. Think of Elvis Presley, Little Richard, Tony Bennett, Lyle Lovett, and Paul Stanley, for example. While this is fictional, according to author Mitch Albom, the foundational story about music and how it affects lives is very real. The author likens life with playing in a band. He writes, "Everyone joins a band in this life." You are born into your first one. Your mother plays the lead. She shares the stage with your father and siblings. As life goes on, you will join other bands. Some through friendship, some through romance, some through neighborhood, school, and army. Maybe you will all dress the same or laugh at your own private vocabulary. Maybe you will flop on couches backstage or share a boardroom table or crowd around a galley inside a ship. But in each band you join, you will play a distinct part, and it will affect you as much as you affect it. He elaborates in a televised interview when launching the book. Everybody has a part to play in a band. It's the same with life. Someone has to keep the rhythm. Someone is up front singing. Everyone has a particular role. Music affects lives, but this is also a story about how we all affect one another. We're all in a band. As with all Albom's books, there are life lessons to be taken away. Frank is an orphan, and a lot of people have come into his life to affect him.
Meeting them all, you realize how many people it takes to raise a child and to affect one another. And then there's the lyrical backing track of music, playing out all the while as you read. Magic strings indeed. And that's it then. And it was good as always to get your calls. Thank you for them. Today's winners, um, see if I can read this, Hilary Barlow and Bradley Boyson will bring you straight after this program. It's Matinee Up Next with James Gribble and Amanda Burter's Book Kisser at this same time on Wednesday, April 20. A podcast of Book Choice will be up on FMR website soon, www.fmr.co.za. From production engineer Mobandi Lobi, from Rick Everett, who compiled the music and kept the show on the road, and from me, Corey Bose-Taylor, it's happy reading. You have been listening to Book Choice, brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers, and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable, and we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them.